and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. The Lords is the largest upper chamber in the world outside China. From the Earl of Effingham to Lord Lebedev, who has spoken only once in the House and never voted, it is one of the weirdest institutions in British life. Know ye that we, of our especial grace, certain knowledge and mere motion, in pursuance of the Life Peerages Act 1958, and of all other powers in that behalf us enabling, do by these presents advance, create and prefer our trusty and well-beloved Charlotte Catherine Tranter Owen to the state, degree, style, dignity, title and honour of Baroness Owen of Alderley Edge. There are nearly 800 of them. The one you just heard introduced to the Lords is a 30-year-old who worked briefly for Boris Johnson but has no other special qualification to sit in Britain's upper chamber. How do you get in there? Why do people never leave? And does it have to be this way? With me to answer those questions is Darren Hughes, who's Chief Executive of the Electoral Reform Society. Welcome to the bunker, Darren. Thank you. While the Lords seems a peculiar way to organise a legislative chamber now, 25 years ago it was even worse, wasn't it? Oh, it sure was. And uh, the Blair Labour government made some big changes, which was to get rid of uh, a chamber that was full of hereditary peers. So the aristocrats used to have uh, the say in the second chamber. And uh, there were some life peers as well that were political appointments, but largely it was people who uh, were there by right of birth. And uh, there was a decision to modernise the second chamber and uh, that was work started, but was paused because this is a very difficult topic uh, to try and get reform on. So it's come a long way um, in that time, but there's still a lot of work to do to make it into a proper functioning democratic chamber accountable to the British people. It seems strange in a way that it's only 25 years ago that our upper chamber was dominated by hereditaries. Nowadays, it seems almost unthinkable, but New Labour swept away most of the hereditary peers, but crucially, not all of them, and 92 of them remain. The hereditary peerage is actually a lot bigger than that, of course. A lot of them were removed. So how are the lucky ones chosen? Well, there's still about 800 who are on the official hereditary list of people with this uh, right of birth status, but only 92 of them are able to be in the House of Lords at any one time. And and basically, it was a deal that was done around the New Labour time because they were finding it so hard to get the reform through. Obviously, to pass a law, it needs to go through Parliament. Parliament has two chambers, the House of Commons, where there was a strong majority for change, and the House of Lords, which were the people being asked to vote themselves out of existence. And so the only way... uh, in the face of that wild opposition was to come up with this compromise of 92. The biggest bulk are reserved for conservatives. Uh, The next biggest group is the Liberal Democrats, and then there are a couple for Labour. And then there's also people who are non-affiliated to a party or crossbenchers, etc. But those 92, when they uh, either retire or pass away, they can only be replaced from within the ranks of the 800 aristocrats who then vote according to whatever block they line up with. So we're in a weird situation where a and in a second chamber, the only people who are actually elected are the hereditary peers, but they're elected from the world's strangest constituency. And there's a built-in bias towards conservatives in that constituency. There's a built-in bias towards the conservatives, uh, absolutely. That, that's a matter of record because these party blocks are frozen in time as they were in the end of the 1990s. But there's also another terrible bias, which is that uh, they are all men. So uh, although there are some women who hold these titles outside of the House of Lords, because for so long it went to the eldest son as opposed to the eldest child. So there's 92 guaranteed seats for men uh, from hereditary backgrounds 
uh, in our parliament. So I, I, you know, I think a lot of people listening to that will just think that that can't be right. But I'm, I'm afraid, dear listener, it is. So who appoints the Lords? Uh, well, in the strictest of sense, they're appointed by the, the sovereign, uh, by the king. But, but in, in reality, the main way they're appointed uh, is by the prime minister of the day uh, nominating them through the process. Now, there's, there's a body called the House of Lords Appointments Commission, and they uh, were given a task around the time of these reforms we've been mentioning at the end of the 90s to come up with at least a couple of people a year if they wanted to who'd be you know, there's the people that are often promoted as being uh, uh, the, the shining lights of the House of Lords, which are independent people, maybe people with expertise in a particular area, are crucially non-partisan people. And so they have a role uh, in, in coming up with some names, and, they, and they've done that uh, over the last 25 years, but they also play a role in and running a ruler over the names that the Prime Minister uh, puts forward. But essentially, the Prime Minister sets the timetable for it, decides how many there will be, uh, consults other party leaders, because as part of the package, uh, the Prime Minister might go to the leader of the opposition and say, I'm doing a round of appointments to the Lords, and you can have a few, but I'll have more. So we have a situation where party leaders and ex-PMs nominate a lot of peers, but the original intention was that the House of Lords Appointments Committee, which you just mentioned, would pick people with expertise to go into the Lords, wasn't it? And yet they've only chosen four people from that route in the past five years. Why? I suspect that one of the main reasons is, is that the, the House of Lords has become flooded with the patronage route. The three ways of getting into the House of Lords really are hereditary, which we've discussed, uh, spiritual, if you're a bishop in the Church of England, or patronage, if you are um, a friend or a donor or a pal or an ally of a prime minister or a party leader. And so because the numbers have now swelled to, to around 800, so it's much bigger than the House of Commons, the elected chamber, I suspect uh, that the, the HOLAC, as it's known, uh, hasn't wanted to add to that burden of, of the big numbers that, that are there. But it, it has meant that people who are non-partisan who might want to go for a certain amount of time and then step away, people who aren't as interested in the cut and thrust of following the party whip like the political appointees are, uh, th th those, those people really haven't had the chance to come through in the way that was originally envisaged. Yeah, because in theory, anyone can nominate themselves to join the Lords. There's mm. actually a, a method on the website where you can apply. <laughs> Does anyone actually do that? Do well, you know? I'm sure they do, but but they don't get very far. No. And um, <laughs> uh, you know, and I think the other the, the other problem is that because there's been this fixation on life appointments, if you've if that com committee's been going for 25 years, putting up a few people uh, every year, and at the beginning they did do quite a few, and there's a, and there's a you know a list of very prominent and accomplished people who were on that list at the beginning, but many of them are still alive today in the 2020s, and so you begin to see that this issue about about recognising somebody with a job for life means that you're cramming out the space. Whereas, you know, I think if it was more linked to the notion of terms of service, which is mainly how we consider things in a democratic sense, then there'd be more space coming through rather than people who were, you know, probably absolutely experts on something 20 years ago. Doesn't necessarily mean that all of us will be experts, uh, you know, all that time later. Is there any limit on the size of the Lords? There's no limit. There's been calls for it to be reduced. Well, there's obviously calls for it to be abolished and replaced with an elected chamber, but there have been formulas which the Lords themselves have come up with to try and get the numbers down. There was the uh, uh, committee that came forward a few years ago saying, you know, for every um, one person that comes in who's new, two people must go out. Um, and that's one of those mechanisms that people happily agree with until they realise they're one of the people that's being discussed. And so we haven't 
haven't seen that kind of willing set of retirements in a big number. I mean, some do retire because now they can keep the title, but it's nowhere near enough because um, so many recent prime ministers have been nominating so many people that the numbers just keep going up and up. And then you get another category of people who decide to step away from active service, maybe to pursue business interests, and so don't want to come under the transparency and disclosure regimes of the House of Lords. And so they keep their membership, but they're not on active service until whatever other avenues they're pursuing have come to a conclusion. Which seems very strange, because if you're appointed to the House of Lords, surely you have a responsibility to serve your country. It's a huge honour. But you can just step away and say, I don't need to declare anything. I don't need to do anything. I'm taking this time out. Maybe I'll come back. Correct. I mean, it's entirely subjective. So one of the criteria for the nominations that come through from HOLAC is making sure that the people have the time necessary to put into the job, because this is about scrutiny and revising legislation, coming up with amendments, etc. It's quite often quite detailed work. It's quite thorough work. It's not the sort of thing you can glance over a piece of paper and and, uh, and then say, oh, I'm, I'm ready to go. You, you do need to put in the hard yards uh, to be effective. But people can tell you when they're being sworn in and when there's some media attention on them, I intend to be a full and functioning working member of the House of Lords. Uh, but as time goes by, there's no mechanism really to keep track of that. The only uh, accountability factor is that by not attending, they can't claim the, the tax-free allowance, which is over £300 per day. So defenders of the Lords say that they scrutinise legislation in a way that the Commons can't be bothered to do. So why meddle with something that works? Let's hear Baroness Butler's sloss on what she thinks would be lost if the Lords were abolished. I think it would be disastrous. The Commons not only produces incomplete and very often nowadays badly drafted bills which we put to rights in the Lords and which, for which they are actually grateful. Turkeys don't vote for Christmas and all that, as we've just been saying, but does she have a point? I, I think there's certainly a job to be done. Uh, I think the idea that you have a, a, a second chamber that uh, takes a longer-term view um, than maybe the day-to-day -day cut and thrust of politics that the House of Commons is required to do, I think a second chamber that can dedicate its time to detailed scrutiny of legislation to make sure it's achieving its policy intent with the clauses and the words that are in the legislation. These are all very worthy tasks. And in a strange kind of way, the recent rolling controversy about the House of Lords has demonstrated two things. One, often the Lords have stepped in to make sensible changes to things that are a little bit of a rush of blood to the head, if you want to put it that way, from the House of Commons. And that, that shows the task of a scrutiny chamber. Like the illegal migration bill for for example? That, well, well, many examples of, of amendments that if they hadn't have come from the House of Lords would have sailed through on a winner-takes-all House of Commons with a government that doesn't have a majority of the public but has a majority of the seats because of our voting system and there'd be no there'd be no handbrake. So so I think that, that does demonstrate the need but at the same time you've had Prime Ministers misusing this patronage angle that they have to load up the place with people who really, you know, the most objective observer would say aren't required to be there, if I can put it politely. Um, uh, and so at the same time, you've got these dueling and conflicting things happening where the function is being demonstrated as is required, but the structure is being shown to be so wanting. And I think until that tension is resolved, uh, all of the good work of, of the second chamber is going to be totally overshadowed by these failings and uh, by, the, by the way it's being let, the British people are being let down uh, with the current setup.
Would it help if the Appointments Commission had more power? Because we know that they rejected some of Boris Johnson's nominees for a peerage, but not all of them. Mm. And as we know, there's been controversy over his selections, to put it mildly. Um, Since they have been unable to stop a 30-year-old who briefly worked for Boris Johnson being nominated, who, who really doesn't seem qualified to take up such a senior and important role, Do we need to give them more power or is the problem wider and we just need to revisit the whole structure? Well, I I think the latter is the most important point because we we, we can't keep carrying on like this. But to the first point, I think it does need more power in the interim because we've relied on the judgment of prime ministers not to push it too far, not to overdo it and to make sensible decisions. Now, Boris Johnson is the only Prime Minister uh, since Tony Blair, and there's been quite a few. He is the only one to have overruled uh, a recommendation from the committee saying, look, don't don't make this appointment. So once I think you go down that path of Prime Ministers saying, I'm going to bash through what the referee says, and I'm going to bust through uh, the norms of, of good behaviour on these matters, then it shows that the system can't work. And therefore, I think you do need to toughen up. And I think the reason why some of the names he put forward didn't make it through was not only because Holak were prepared to uh, to take a stand on it, but also they knew that the incumbent Prime Minister would back them on it. Whereas if it had been a different personality, like some of the ones we've seen recently, they might have just said, well, you know, I'm, I'm keen on making sure my resignation list gets through, therefore I better honour a previous person's resignation list. And, you know, don't forget we still have the Liz Trust list to come. So, so you know, the fireworks are not over yet uh, in this respect. And I think that we do need to have thorough uh, democratic reform of, of an institution that is no longer working in the way that its uh, a task would require, require it to work. But I think in the meantime, until we can get to that phase, uh, there needs to be a, a lot more uh, powers given to this independent body to ensure that w- w- their thorough work is taken seriously. Do you want to see an elected Lords? I think it's absolutely critical. I think the Lords should be a lot smaller. We do not need 800 people. It should be, it should be smaller by definition in the House of Commons. It should be uh, term limited so people don't go there f- for life. Uh, and it should have a democratic mandate from the public. And that might mean, you know, one single long term, for example, so that people aren't campaigning, politicians worried about re-election, but at least their their day-to-day work has been derived by the mandate of the public. And I think that would also be an opportunity to use proportional representation because then we could we could counter some of the big problems with the current setup, which is its domination by London and the southeast and by the big political parties. So you could have the, the smaller parties, the parties from the nations and regions uh, of the UK – much more represented. But also under a PR system, you could get independent people standing saying, I'd like to do a single term uh, in the House of Lords or whatever it would be called, the second chamber, but I don't have a party affiliation. Well, under our current voting system, that's really hard to achieve. So I think you know we could make some real changes to reduce the size, broaden out its appeal, both in terms of geography and in terms of diversity, and also um, bring in more political voices than, than exist right now with the, with the two-party club. Gordon Brown has put forward plans for reforming the Lords a few months ago, and one of the things he wants to do is to rebalance it, as you suggest, more sort of regional basis, so you'd make sure you had enough people from the regions and the nations. What did he recommend, and do you think his plans are a good idea? 
I, I really welcome what he's suggesting because for a few reasons. Number one, he describes it as indefensible. So so rather than playing along with let's see if we can fix it internally chaps <laughs> kind of theory, you know, it's a very senior um, public figure or a former prime minister or a former long-term chancellor coming out and saying this is indefensible. So I, I like that. Um, it, it shifts the grounds of the debate. The second thing I like is that he links it with the economic and social justice performance of the UK as well. So tying together what happens in our economic and social life with our democratic life. And I think that's a really important thing because otherwise people can look at this and say, ah, this all seems esoteric. Why are you wasting time and money on that? But what I liked about his report was that he tried to frame it in terms of, you know, where are there issues in society and the economy in the UK and how can democratic structures assist that? Now, that's not a right-wing or left-wing argument because we'll have contested elections and there'll be governments formed from either side over time. But this notion that the, the public policy challenges they want to address are, are, are weaved in with our democratic institutions supporting that, I think is a really good concept. I think that's what's kept it alive rather than making it a, a doorstopper kind of report. And then the third thing, I think, is, is introducing that uh, that democracy element and bringing in more nation, the people of the nations and the regions of the UK and finding a role for some of our other devolved structures like the, the metro mayors that have developed in recent times and big voices in parts of England that don't otherwise necessarily uh, get heard. And the Brown model would, would bring them into that as well. So there's a, there's a lot in there, I think, that people should look at. And they should look at it not as a suggestion by a Labour politician. They should look at it as a suggestion from a statesman thinking about the long-term interests of the country. So the problem with Lords Reform, of course, is that while most people seem to agree that the system is very flawed, it's never seen as urgent. There's always something that must be fixed first. Do you think Keir Starmer will follow through? Is he going to implement Brown's proposals? Well, I really hope he will, and I, and I hope that the Brown proposals uh, give a cohesive and rigorous sense as to why it's important to do. Political parties often have a reference in their manifesto of fixing the House of Lords, and then you know it's, it never seems to be a priority. I think going back to what Brown's done, he's not just pitched it in terms of looking at it just from the lens of democracy. He's tried to link it to economics, and I think that opens up a new way of discussing and thinking about uh, about our structures and the public uh, life of the UK, and that, that to me is worthwhile doing. I also think that if Keir Starmer um, wants to not just win one election, but presumably win one after that as well, uh, he needs to think um, from early doors what structures he needs to be uh, an, an effective prime minister, and I think what the Brown report has done is laid out some reforms of, of, of how he could be... Uh, the Prime Minister of the whole United Kingdom and having an institution down the corridor which had genuine nations and regions, uh, thoughtful representation and bringing in some of these mayors and and really straightening the place out. I think, you know, for a new government, that would be something that would be a, a useful thing to have. I suppose the tendency is of all new governments is to think that the whole world has changed by virtue of their election <laughs> and that, uh, that, and that they've arrived with these good intentions and, and those good intentions are enough. But I think what we've seen in recent years is if you don't have the institutional settings right, Right. You're really at risk if things go wrong, if, if uh, things go in a different direction. And I, I think, you know, that's something that people in, in the United States are also considering. And, and it's what we should really get ahead of the game here uh, and take this good proposal and, and, and turn it into uh, something concrete. I also think that, you know, this basic principle, if you're going to live in a country and follow the laws of a country, you, you, should, get a, you should get a say in the people who are writing those laws. It was reported a few weeks ago that Keir Starmer wanted to actually pack the Lords with Labour-appointed peers in order to get the legislation through that he wants to get through. Now, it may be that the legislation he wants to get through is to abolish the Lords itself, <laughs> in which case, great. But 
there is a risk, isn't there, that he just uses it for his own purposes and then never reforms it? Huge risk, huge risk. And I think that history has a way of repeating itself on some of these things. You know, I mean, it's easy to be tough on politicians. They're, they're human beings like the rest of us. And we, we all find ways of justifying our existence at various points. And, and what can happen, I think, in that situation is people get there. They quite like it. It's collegial. They feel like they're doing important work, and oftentimes they are doing very important work. And so this idea of, I'll, I'll just stay one more year, I'll just do one more term. So I think that if, you know, I, don't, I think we've got 800 people, that's more than enough. Uh, if, if the leader of the opposition has a clear manifesto and wins an election, uh, then there are conventions in the House of Lords about following what is in a manifesto. I don't really buy this thing that they need to stack it with lots and lots of people from their own party uh, to counter what, you know, Johnson et al. have done in the last uh, decade and a half or so. However, I do take the practical point that, that if they want people to help them pass their, their pr program, that that might be one way they have to do it, if that's their view. If, if I was in uh, Keir Starmer's shoes, I, I would, in addition to handing over a letter of appointment, I'd ask for a future undated letter of resignation from the recipient so that he can call time on it all. Uh, because these things have a way of, uh, you know, moss and rolling stones and all these sort of things. And I think we've got to, we've, you know, th th there's a moment here. I mean, we've, we're finally at a point where a lot of the public are noticing that our democratic institutions are, are at risk from bad behaviour. Uh, and uh, before that gets out of hand, there's a chance for that to be cleaned up. And I think it would be a grave mistake to justify something on the basis of a, we just need to do this temporarily, and then another 25 years goes by and we've, we've not moved much further on it. So I think there'll be a real risk that in order to please some very worthy political activist or whatever, they get given a job. The risk there is that, um, that they lose the faith of the public pretty quickly. And I think, you know, new governments have very small windows to show they're different. And this would be a really strong sign for a new government to show that they're different because they'd be effectively reforming their own industry, uh, which, which, as we've discussed, is often a very difficult thing to be brave enough to do. It is. Clause four, maybe. Darren, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You can support us to keep making podcasts for less than a hundredth of the daily fee for turning up at the Lords. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Kasia Tomasiewicz, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>